Welcome to the Law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 58. Bivens versus six unknown named agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. This is a Supreme Court case from 1971, and the first thing that popped into my mind when I heard the name of this case way back when, decades ago, think about it, Bevins versus six unknown named agents. How can they be both unknown and named? Are they Schrodinger's agents, both unknown yet named at the same time? That question, unfortunately, is not answered in the opinion itself. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through whatever your favorite podcast provider is and at speakeasyideas.com slash podcasts, or to go right here to this podcast, speakeasyideas.com slash the law. Follow this podcast on social media. On Twitter, it's the law, DKW, and on facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. Uh, whenever a new podcast is out, I'll tweet about it. I'll send a Facebook note out about it with the links so you can check it out. Plus, I will occasionally tweet or put on Facebook news from the judiciary, things that are going on, pending cases, quotes from famous justices. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're so inclined, check out the Facebook page, like it, review it, comment, subscribe, share, etc., etc. You know how that goes. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, all that type of thing. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for more information. So who do we have here in this case? Bivens is Webster Bivens. He is the plaintiff, and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics is the defendant. We no longer have a Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and we'll uh, tell you what happened to them. So this case was decided. The opinion came out in 1971. The facts of the case all started in 1965, when six agents, these unknown but named agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics forced their way into Bivens' home without a warrant and searched the premises. Agents handcuffed Bivens in front of his wife and children, arrested him on narcotics charges. Later, agents interrogated him, subjected him to a visual strip search, which is, I guess they made him get naked and looked at him for contraband or weapons. And I guess a visual strip search would be better than the alternative of one that's not just visual. Bivens sued the agents individually for humiliation, mental suffering, other damages. The district court dismissed the complaint for failure to state a claim. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed, and that went on to the U.S. Supreme Court where he won. Now, um, I've always got the actual opinion linked in the notes. I almost always use the Oyez site, oyez.com. And according to Oyez, there were two issues. In this case, one, does violation of an individual's Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable search and seizures give rise to a federal claim for money damages? So the Supreme Court in this case says yes, six to three. They didn't address the second issue because the Supreme Court said the Court of Appeals didn't address it, so they weren't going to address it. But that issue dealt with governmental immunity. We discussed qualified immunity in episode four of the law, so go check that out for more about that. Those are the issues. They only got to one of them, and they ruled in Bivens' favor. Now, this is an important question because Bivens asserted that his right 
to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures as protected by the Fourth Amendment. And you guys all know this by now, not granted by the Fourth Amendment, but protected by the Fourth Amendment. Bivens said his right to be free from those searches and seizures was violated. But where does that leave him? The Fourth Amendment says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. Okay, but what if it is? The Fourth Amendment doesn't say what happens if the government does this to you or government agents when working for the government does this. What's the remedy? Let's say they blatantly violate their Fourth Amendment restrictions that are supposed to protect your rights. What happens? Well, the Supreme Court earlier, decades before this case, invented the exclusionary rule, and that idea is mentioned throughout the case. We won't get into that too much. But in that case, they said, if the police violate your rights and charge you when you go to trial, they can't use that evidence that they obtained as a result of violating your rights. That was back in 1920. The U.S. Supreme Court adopted that fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine in criminal cases only. It doesn't apply to a civil case or anything else. And the court stated that allowing the evidence gathered as an indirect result of an unconstitutional search and seizure reduces the Fourth Amendment to a form of words. I think that's right. Now, that original case in the 20s only applied to the feds. But in 1961, the rule was adopted to the states by the Supreme Court via incorporation, which is an idea we've talked about. That's the doctrine that comes up quite frequently in many of these cases because originally the Bill of Rights, which again, you guys can say this along with me because you know what I'm going to say. It's more properly called the Bill of Restrictions because it doesn't grant individuals any rights. It mentions individuals' rights and says the government is restricted from violating those rights. The government may not violate those rights. The federal government is all it applied to originally. This incorporation doctrine, the U.S. Supreme Court took the 14th Amendment, which specifically does apply to the states, took each one. I haven't done all of them yet. They've done almost all of them. All of the restrictions on violations of rights that are mentioned in the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights slash restrictions and has applied them to the states on a case-by-case basis. Almost all of them have been applied at this point. So that's why it's important to note that originally this exclusionary rule only applied to the feds and then some 40 years later the Supreme Court decided that also applied to the states via the 14th Amendment. So back to the question, what is the remedy for a violation of your rights? In this Fourth Amendment context, the exclusionary rule doesn't help you. It doesn't help Bevins in this case at all. Because apparently he didn't do it. He says he didn't do it. And I'm just reading between the lines. Apparently he wasn't charged because nothing ever is mentioned in the case about a subsequent prosecution. He says he didn't do it. They violated his Fourth Amendment rights. Well, there's no trial to exclude any evidence. So that doesn't help Bivens at all. And the exclusionary rule has many drawbacks. Uh, Chief Justice Berger, in his dissent, goes into many of them. But what is Bivens' remedy? Is there one? And if not, can the Supreme Court make one? And the Supreme Court doesn't make a remedy for Bivens here. They just allow a remedy that has existed forever, basically, in the English common law system. And how they get to that point is discussed in the case. So it was a 6-3 majority in favor of Bivens. They said Bivens did have a cause of action and could get monetary damages if he proved this case and wins. So he's got to prove the case. He's got to prove he suffered damage. But the Supreme Court allows him to proceed after the lower courts had said, no, you can't sue for money. Sorry, we're tossing out your case. Supreme Court said, no, the case can continue. William Brennan wrote the opinion for the majority. Brennan is known for being a very progressive and activist judge, yet he was nominated by a Republican, Eisenhower. Brennan served on the court from 59 
to 90, so about 31 years. But he retired in 1990 and lived another seven years until 1997. He was 91 years old when he finally passed away. Brennan had been a New Jersey State Supreme Court Justice, and he had served in the Army during World War II and was a colonel. I like giving you some personal information about these people. And I like to mention if they died in office or if they retired, because that's something that's in the news today, what's going to happen to any number of the Supreme Court Justices. William Douglas also was in the majority, joined Brennan's opinion. He was nominated by FDR, Democrat, obviously, and Douglas was on the bench from 39 until 75, more than three decades, like 36 years. And he retired also, and he lived another five years, died at the age of 81. Potter Stewart, also in the majority, also nominated by Eisenhower, the Republican. He was on the Supreme Court. Potter Stewart was from 58 until 81. He retired also and lived another four years. He was 70 years old when he passed away. Byron White, who you guys know, Colorado guy, NFL, was a lieutenant commander in the Navy during World War II. JFK nominated him. He was on the bench from 62 to 93, so almost three decades. He retired, died almost nine years later at the age of 84. Thurgood Marshall, also in the majority, nominated by LBJ, you know, the Democrat. He was on the bench from 67 to 91, again, a couple decades. He retired, lived another two years, and died at the age of 84. Now, John Marshall Harlan II, who you guys know I like a lot about him, he joined in the judgment of the five Supreme Court justices we just mentioned, but he wrote separately. So he concurred in the result, but wanted to write something different to explain what he thought about it. So he's still in favor of Bivens. He just wrote a separate opinion. He had been nominated by Ike, another guy nominated by Eisenhower. He was on the bench from 55 to 71, did retire before he died, but just a few months before he died at the age of 72. And again, I like to point out the differences, these life experiences of the justices when I do these rosters of votes on these cases. I think it personalizes them some. They're just human beings like you and me. And out of those six in the majority, three were nominated by Democrats, three were nominated by Republicans, for whatever that's worth. The dissents, there were three separate written dissents. Chief Justice Warren Burger, who, was, who had been appointed by Nixon and who was on the bench from 69 to 86, so almost three decades. Uh, he retired, did not die in office. Lived about another nine years, died in uh, 1995, and he was 87 years old when he passed away. Hugo Black also wrote a dissent. He had been appointed by FDR. He was on a bench from 37 until 1971, over three decades. He also retired, but he retired just eight days before he died, so I guess he was pretty sick when he did that, and he was 85 years old. Uh, he had been a captain in the Army during World War I. Harry Blackman also um, wrote a separate dissent, had been appointed by Nixon, and he was on the bench for 24 years from 70 to 94. So the dissents, you've got two Republicans and one Democrat for whatever that's worth. So this is not a partisan decision, both Republicans and Democrats on the majority and who dissented. So what is the legal analysis? What does a majority of the court say here? So let's start with the first words of the opinion, because they usually do a good job of kind of laying out what they're going to talk about. The court wrote, The Fourth Amendment provides that, as we just said, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. There you go. They talked about another case they discussed where they reserved the question whether violation of that command in the Fourth Amendment by a federal agent, usually like you know some sort of federal law enforcement officer, acting under color of his authority 
which means basically working as a law enforcement officer, whether or not that gives rise to a cause of action for money damages consequent upon that alleged unconstitutional conduct. If that conduct could be proven and accepted by a jury, can the person whose rights have been violated get money damages? So they didn't reach that in 1946. Today they say we hold that it does. Court goes on. This case has its origin in an arrest and search carried out in the morning of November 26th 1965. Petitioner's complaint alleged that on that day, respondents, these agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, were acting under a claim of federal authority. They entered his apartment, arrested him for alleged narcotics violations. The agents manacled Petitioner in front of his wife and children and threatened to arrest the entire family. How outrageous is that? They searched the apartment from stem to stern, according to Justice Warren. Thereafter, Petitioner was taken to the federal courthouse in Brooklyn, where he was interrogated, booked, and subjected to the visual strip search. So who is this FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics? This is the type of thing that I always wonder about. I, I don't think we still have a Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and I'm reading this, and of course we don't. And I don't mind using Wikipedia for this type of history. And this is what they said. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was an agency of the United States Department of the Treasury, which is who Elliot Ness worked for, by the way. Not the Bureau of Narcotics, but the Treasury Department. It was established by an act of June 14, 1930, way back when. It consolidated the functions of the what was then the Federal Narcotics Control Board. It's a great name for a government agency during the FDR era, is it not? And the Narcotic Division. So those two things were merged. The older bureaus were established to assume enforcement responsibilities assigned to the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act and the Narcotic Drugs Import and Export Act. That one's in 1922. So the Federal Bureau of Narcotics had that history, and it was merged in 1968 with the Bureau of Drug Abuse Control, which was an agency of the Food and Drug Administration. The names of these bureaus and government departments at the federal level really do harken back to Soviet-era bureaus, don't they? Uh, don't get me started. So when the FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, was merged with the Bureau of Drug Abuse Control, which was an agency of the FDA, that formed the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs the BNDD, which was under the auspices of the Department of Justice. This BNDD was a predecessor agency of the current Drug Enforcement Administration. The history of these government bureaucracies is, how shall we say, interesting. So that's who the FBN was. Back to what the majority wrote. On July 7th, 1967, petitioner Webster Bivens brought suit in federal district court and asserted that the arrest and search were effected without a warrant and that unreasonable force was employed in making the arrest, and it alleges that the arrest was made without probable cause. Petitioner Bivens claimed to have suffered great humiliation, embarrassment, and mental suffering as a result of the federal agent's unlawful conduct and sought monetary damages from each of them. So like we said, trial court said, oh, you can't do that. Fourth Amendment doesn't allow for monetary damages. Court of Appeals agrees with that, but the Supreme Court overturns those two decisions and rules in Bivens' favor. So feds argue that someone wronged like Bivens here, or, you know, someone who alleges that they have been wronged like this, can sue any private person for damages, and they should just be able to sue federal agents for the same thing. So if somebody kidnaps you, you could sue them in court for the tort of wrongful imprisonment, or you can sue somebody for trespassing. So if the cops come into your house when they're not supposed to be there, you can sue them for trespassing or assault, whatever they do to you. But the majority of the court doesn't buy that. They don't think that is a very meaningful method of preserving and protecting these rights, the court says. In so doing, the Fed's making this argument, ignore the fact that power, once granted, does not disappear like a magic gift when it is wrongfully used. 
an agent acting, albeit unconstitutionally, in the name of the United States, possesses a far greater capacity for harm than an individual trespasser exercising no authority other than his own. That seems absolutely true to me. They nailed that part of it. Court goes on. As our cases make clear, the Fourth Amendment operates as a limitation upon the exercise of federal power. It guarantees to citizens of the United States the absolute right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures carried out by virtue of federal authority. And where federally protected rights have been invaded, it has been the rule from the beginning that courts will be alert to adjust their remedies so as to grant the necessary relief. And they go into some history backing that part up. And the court discusses how it's not as big of a deal to tell your neighbor, no, you can't come in my house. But it's different when that person is a federal agent saying, I want to come in your house. So the comparison to a private person wanting to come in your house and a government agent with guns is not really comparable. And the Supreme Court points that out. They explain that. One who demands admission under a claim of federal authority, federal government agent, stands in a far different position than your neighbor. The mere invocation of federal power by a federal law enforcement official will normally render futile any attempt to resist an unlawful entry or arrest by resort to the local police, they're not going to be able to help you, and a claim of authority to enter is likely to unlock the door as well. In such cases, there is no safety for the citizen, except in the protection of the judicial tribunals for rights which have been invaded by the officers of the government professing to act in its name, the government's name. There remains to him but the alternative of resistance, which may amount to crime. They talk about there's a common law right to stop a government agent from unlawfully entering your house. Now, that could result in you being killed. So that may not be a practical way to assert one's rights. So the court's saying maybe we can do something better than that. And in the footnote to that sentence about the alternative of resistance, which may amount to crime, because you're going to get charged with it regardless. Even if you're completely innocent, you're going to get charged with a crime. The court points out, no state has undertaken to limit the common law doctrine that one may use reasonable force to resist an unlawful arrest by a private person. At least two states have outlawed resistance to an unlawful arrest sought to be made by a person known to be an officer of the law. So two states back here in 1971, the court says, made it illegal to resist an unlawful arrest. Court in the footnote goes on, that damages may be obtained for injuries consequent upon a violation of the Fourth Amendment by federal officials should hardly seem a surprising proposition. Historically, damages have been regarded as the ordinary remedy for an invasion of personal interests in liberty. Court goes on and, and talks about how the Fourth Amendment doesn't say anything about a remedy, right? They say the Fourth Amendment does not, in so many words, provide for its enforcement by an award of money damages for the consequences of its violation. No, it doesn't. It doesn't say anything about damages or what you can do if your rights have been violated. And that's the crux of this issue in this case, Bivens versus Six Agents. Now, Congress passed a statute in 1871 that allowed people to sue state agents for deprivation of constitutional rights. It was all part of the post-Civil War Amendments, 14th Amendment, making states provide equal protection and due process and all of that type of thing, which they heretofore had not done. And that is what we now call a Section 1983 action because it's codified in Title 42 of the U.S. Code, Section 1983. So in 1871, exactly 100 years before this case was decided in 1971, the Congress laid out how you can sue a state agent for violating your constitutional rights or your rights as protected by the Constitution. But they didn't do that for federal agents. And Congress still hasn't done that. 
in the 50 years since this case in 1971. And one can say they didn't need to do it because this case did it for them. And because the majority says Congress doesn't have to do it, the court says. The present case involves no special factors counseling hesitation in the absence of affirmative action by Congress. So even though Congress hasn't done anything, doesn't mean we can't allow the award of monetary damages if proven. We, the Supreme Court, cannot accept respondents, that's the government's, government's formulation of the question as whether the availability of money damages is necessary to enforce the Fourth Amendment. So the feds are arguing that Bivens and others like him can't enforce their rights or get some kind of remedy for their rights without a monetary award. Monetary awards are historically all you can get when something has been done to you. If somebody rear-ends you in a tort case and you lose an arm, court can't give you back your arm. Or you get a broken back and you're going to have to live a back pain for the rest of your life. Court can't fix your back. All courts can do is give you money. And some people bemoan that fact, but it's a fact. Court cannot put you back to the place you were before you were damaged. All it can do is award money for what was done to you. And the court's saying same thing in a tort case as it is here when federal agents violate the terms of the Fourth Amendment. Court goes on about that. For we, the Supreme Court, have here no explicit congressional declaration, so Congress hasn't done anything, that persons injured by a federal officer's violation of the Fourth Amendment may not recover money damages from the agents, but must instead be remitted to another remedy equally effective in the view of Congress. Congress hasn't said that. So not only has Congress said you don't have a right to sue the federal agents, but they they haven't said you don't. So Congress hasn't said people can't get money damages in a case like this, where there's been an alleged constitutional violation by a federal government agent. And the court says common law has always allowed for monetary damages. And just because we're dealing with federal agents violating the federal constitution doesn't mean we're precluded from that because Congress hasn't said anything about it. They didn't change the common law. Court goes on, the very essence of civil liberty certainly consists in the right of every individual to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury. Having concluded that petitioner's complaint Webster Bivens, states of cause of action under the Fourth Amendment, we hold that petitioner, Bivens, is entitled to recover money damages for any injuries he has suffered as a result of the agent's violation of the amendment. And with that, Bivens wins. He can proceed to trial. He, he hasn't won any money yet, but up until this time when the Supreme Court said, yes, you can proceed with your case, he couldn't even do that. So now he wins because he can proceed to trial. He still has to prove his case. But he wasn't allowed to even try that until the Supreme Court said he could. And with this decision, uh, it applies to other people who allege that their rights have been violated by a federal officer. John Marshall Harlan II wrote separately concurring in the judgment, which, like I said, means he agrees with the outcome. But he didn't sign on to that reasoning. He wanted to write his own reasoning. So a couple of highlights from the concurrence from Harlan. And he makes a reference to two of the dissenters. And he says, two members of this court, these dissenters, Add the contention that we lack the constitutional power to accord Bivens a remedy for damages in the absence of congressional action, creating a federal cause of action for damages for an unreasonable search in violation of the Fourth Amendment. He's quoting Justice Black's dissent and also says, look at Chief Justice Berger's dissent. And that argument by the dissenters there doesn't seem unreasonable to me. And we'll mention that dissent in more detail shortly. Harlan says, I am of the opinion that federal courts do have the power to award damages for violation of constitutionally protected interests, and I agree with the majority, but a traditional judicial remedy such as money damages is appropriate to the vindication of the personal interests protected by the Fourth Amendment. And he admits that the contention 
that the constitutional power of federal courts, like the Supreme Court is doing here, to accord Bivens money damages for his claim depends on the passage of a statute creating a federal cause of action. He says that point is not entirely free of ambiguity, but he explains why he comes out on the side he does. The interest which Bivens claims to be free from official conduct in contravention of the Fourth Amendment is a federally protected interest. So it's an interest in the Constitution. That's about as federal interest as you can get. The question, he goes on, says, is whether the power to authorize money damages as a judicial remedy for the vindication of a federal constitutional right is placed by the Constitution itself exclusively in Congress's hands. The majority and John Marshall Harlan say no. It's not exclusively given to Congress. The judiciary has the power to allow that to go on. The dissent say... Yes, that power is exclusively with Congress. Parlin says, he admits, he says, to be sure, it must be remembered that legislatures, the Congress, are the ultimate guardians of the liberties and welfare of the people in quite as great a degree as the courts. But it must also be recognized that the Bill of Rights, which should be the Bill of Restrictions, is particularly intended to vindicate the interests of the individual in the face of the popular will as expressed in legislative majorities. So he's saying the majority can vote to screw over an individual or a couple of individuals, a minority. So in some he's saying, waiting for the legislative majority to offer a remedy for a persecuted or a damaged individual may not be that prudent. And he goes through the history and says why courts can do this. And he says in his concurrence, for people in Bivens' shoes, it is money damages or nothing. And I think he's right about that. Of course, that doesn't answer the question of whether or not the courts have authority to provide that remedy or if that authority lies exclusively with Congress. And Chief Justice Berger dissents for that reason. He says, I dissent from today's holding, which judicially creates a damage remedy not provided for by the Constitution and not enacted by Congress. We would more surely preserve the important values of the doctrine of separation of powers and perhaps get a better result by recommending a solution to the Congress, as he does in his, his dissent here. Recommend something to Congress because they are the branch of government in which the Constitution has vested the legislative power. That's right. Legislation is the business of Congress, and it has the facilities and competence for that task, as we do not. I am very sympathetic to that, and I think he's right on that. If you make Congress do their job, they'll do their job, or they'll get voted out. But if you don't make them do their job, eh, they're not going to do it. Eh, we don't have to do anything. The Supreme Court did it. And once we start blurring the distinctions between the different branches and their legitimate authority, things start to break down. He quotes uh, Professor Thayer. And I think this is pretty good. He doesn't mention his first name. He cites this favorably. And I think it's pretty good too. If it be true that the holders of legislative power, Congress, are careless or evil, yet the constitutional duty of the court remains untouched, it cannot rightly attempt to protect the people by undertaking a function not its own. So it's not legitimate for the court to try to do something the legislature hasn't done. On the other hand, by adhering rigidly to its own duty, the court will help as nothing else can, to fix the spot where responsibility lies with Congress and to bring down on that precise locality the thunderbolt of popular condemnation. For that course, the true course of judicial duty always will powerfully help to bring the people and their representatives to a sense of their own responsibility. That's great stuff. And I agree with that, Professor, and I agree with Berger for citing it favorably. Berger says, I, I do not question the need for some remedy 
to give meaning and teeth to the constitutional guarantees against unlawful conduct by government officials without some effective sanction, these protections would constitute little more than rhetoric. He's right. He would just have that remedy come from Congress. He discusses the exclusionary rule and why he thinks that's a bad idea and all the problems that comes with it. And he says, today's holding in favor of Bivens seeks to fill one of the gaps of the suppression doctrine because excluding evidence in Bivens' case doesn't help him at all. So they're trying to fill that gap. But that's at the price of impinging on the legislative and policy functions that the Constitution vests in Congress. Berger points out, reasonable and effective substitutes to fix this problem of Bivens not having a remedy, can be formulated if Congress would take the lead. And he gives some examples of when they've done it in the past. I, Berger, dissenting, see no insuperable obstacle to the elimination of the suppression doctrine if Congress would provide some meaningful and effective remedy against unlawful conduct by government officials. Again, Congress, do your job. Just as Black dissent uh, sounds similar notes, and he writes... There can be no doubt that Congress could create a federal cause of action for damages for an unreasonable search in violation of the Fourth Amendment, like they did against state officials in Section 1983. Blackman's dissent, some of the same notes, and he wrote, wrote, The Fourth Amendment was adopted in 1791, and in all the intervening years, neither the Congress nor this court has seen fit to take this step that they took today. I had thought, for the truly aggrieved person, Other quite adequate remedies have always been available. If not, it is the Congress and not this court that should act. And there you have it. I am sympathetic to the minority, to the dissenters' opinions here. But that was not what the court said. That was not what the court ruled. The majority said, we don't need to wait on Congress. Bivens and people in his situation can sue for monetary damages. And it's clear that Congress could easily provide the remedy. They just haven't. And the Supreme Court authorizing this remedy for monetary damages means Congress doesn't have to do its job. And that when one branch, my view on this, when one branch cedes its authority, like Congress cedes it to the executive all the time, or if one branch takes authority from another branch, our form of government gets weaker. There's a reason for the separation of powers for the checks and balances. And I think this is one of those hard cases where you want Bivens to have a chance to prove his case and to get a remedy. But there's an old cliche that you hear in law school that hard cases make bad law. And if courts made Congress do its job, I submit they would or they would face the consequences. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, episode 58, Bivens versus Six Unknown yet somehow named Agents of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. We are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Follow me on Twitter at DKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, getting together for coffee or beer. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for more on that. And until next week, always remember, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.